0: Well, it's been a good weekend together. Um, if I asked a question, why do you come to Young Adults for the first time? Or some of you are really brave, and you came to Young Adults for the first time this weekend. And if I asked, you know, why, why did you come here for the first time, what would you say? Animal ball. Who played animal ball today? Man, anyone sore? Got bruises? Hey, good. It's the only way to play animal ball, apparently. Um, is my wife here? She was. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to say what I'm about to say. I always, when you get married, your perspective changes a little bit, and I'm always a little relieved when she doesn't go to Animal Ball because I just don't want her to get hurt, right? And I don't want one of you to be the one that has to deal with my wrath if you're the one that hurts her, so. Um, It actually would probably be the other way around, knowing my wife, so. Maybe it was animal ball. Maybe you came to Young Adults for the first time because of the, the coffee. I'm not sure. Maybe you came to Young Adults for the first time because of Brian Niemeyer's flowing blonde hair. That's what got you in the door for the first time. Or maybe, he, Brian, you didn't even make this joke last night. It was the promise of uh, an aha moment. huh? Okay, okay, never mind. Nobody got it. Does Brian had the cans of aha on the, okay, thanks. Or maybe you came for the promise of below-average dad jokes. That was right on cue. Or maybe you came to Young Adults because you were guaranteed a free pen, which many of you have taken very literally, which is why I order pens almost every week. So thank you. <laughs> so if you want to return any of them, let me know. No, why? Why do you come to Young Adults for the first time? If I had to guess, can guarantee... One of the top three reasons that you walked in the door was friends. You wanted community. You wanted relationships. And when you live in Wausau, Wisconsin on a Monday night, you've got two options. You can come to Young Adults or you can go to a local bar. And I think you made the right choice. Friends. We all want friends. We all want community. And is, is that an okay motivation? Is it okay for us to come on a Monday night because we want friendship, we want relationships? Absolutely. I don't think that's just a good motivation. I actually believe that is a great motivation. God created us in his his image. We're image bearers. Part of what it means to be an image bearer is that we're created relationally. We're created to desire, to long for relationships with other people. That reflects the image of God. God has existed in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for all of eternity, in perfect unity, in perfect relationship with one another. We reflect his image. We have this desire to know, this desire to be known. That's a God-given desire. But if we're honest, relationships are also kind of hard, aren't they? (laughs) Friendships are hard because we're broken, because we're Sinful. And if you're anything like me, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to drive a wedge in our relationships because of our sin and our selfishness. And you know how it works. You know, it sounds like this We were friends until we were roommates, and then it went sideways. Or, I thought we were really close, and then he just stopped responding to my text messages, and I have no idea what happened. Or, We were really close, and then he started dating, and I haven't seen him for a month. That was me all of college, not the dating part, the other part. I called myself by senior year the backup quarterback. I was an RA in the dorms, and I would be hanging out with the guys, and then they would start dating. My friend, he'd just disappear, and it happened over and over again, and then the relationship would end, and then he'd be back hanging out with me again. I said, I'm fine. I'll be the backup quarterback. I'll take that lot in life. But you know how that feels to be the second choice, it's not fun. Or maybe what you told him or you told her in confidence made its way around the entire friend group, and now the relationship is in shambles. Relationships are broken, and our relationships are hard (laughs) because we're not perfect people, because we're sinful people. But does that mean that we should just throw in the towel? Does that mean we should just quit and not even try? relationships are worth fighting for. It's why I love events like Winter Conference and Up North and the Mexico Mission Trip and even our summer service project because they provide the space for us to connect in community. They provide the space for us to deepen in our relationships with other people. That's our vision statement for young adults. It starts with the following. It's connected to Connect, Grow, Go, to connect in gospel-centered relationships with other Christians. We do events like this for lots of reasons, but near the top is that we can connect in relationships with one another, that we can build connections. And if I had to guess that was one of your motivations for even coming this weekend, was to deepen your relationships with the people who are seated next next to you or across from you tonight. You wanted to connect. But those connections, those relationships, they don't happen overnight. (laughs) I remember last year after winter conference, Someone came up to me and shared this with me. I don't remember who it was, so if I'm talking about you, I'm very sorry. But someone came up to me and said, it's a week later, I found real community. I found the best friends that I've ever found. It's amazing. And I kind of chuckled, not externally, internally, and thought, I don't know about that. Why? Because I've been there. My freshman year of college, first semester, I was in the fab 5. Yes, we had hashtags when I was in college. <laughs> I'm not that old. And we did everything together. We ate at the dining hall together, we went on road trips together, we went on did activities together, we had game nights together. Three guys, two girls. Everything. And I'm and we're having conversations like planning the rest of our life together and what we're going to do after we graduate and and We did everything. We couldn't imagine life without these friends. It was real community. And then what happened? Somebody started dating. One of the guys, not me, started dating one of the girls. And guess what? The whole thing exploded and the Fab Five fizzled as fast as it started a month later. And I realized that wasn't the real community (laughs) that I thought it was. Maybe you've been there. Here's a couple clues that your friend group is not real community. Here's the first, exclusivity. If your friend group pushes people out and doesn't let people in, it's not true community. Here's another, obsession. If your friend group is hanging out almost every single night of the week, might not be true community. (laughs) Here's the third, hashtags. If your friend group has a hashtag, the Fab Four, the Fantastic Five, the Elite Eight, probably not true community. Or if your friend group says something like, this is perfect community, or we've never had any conflict, not community. At least not yet. True community has a degree of, of conflict. So we're not longing for a, a club. We're not longing for a clique. We're longing for something deeper, something more meaningful, to know and to be known what differentiates a click from true community? How can we find deep community and keep it? Community that matters, it's not a flash friendship. It's not a click. it's not a social club, it's not a place to hang out on the weekend. Relationships that matter make us look more like Jesus. Relationships that matter push us to grow in our love for God and others. Relationships that matter, they're not superficial. They're not fragile. They're not temporary. Relationships that matter, they stand the test of time. They withstand offenses. They're loyal. They're consistent because relationships that matter are centered on Jesus. And if you found a friend like that, hold on and don't let go. Our goal tonight is not to fight for friendships. Our goal tonight is to fight for koinonia, for deep community. And those are two different things. So if you have your Bibles tonight, we're gonna be in Acts chapter two. It's a great text. The early church follows right after Peter's Pentecost sermon. And anytime we read the book of Acts, we need to have a little hermeneutics lesson. And you've heard me give this hermeneutics lesson before, so you're gonna help me. What are the two rules of biblical interpretation? That's what hermeneutics means, the two rules. First rule is what? Context. Context. And you can even say it three times if you want to add emphasis, right? Okay, so if context, context, context is the first rule, what's the second rule? Genre. Genre. Okay, everyone say context. Context. Everyone say genre. genre. So when you're reading the Bible, you've got to know the context, you've got to know what comes before and after, and you've got to know what type of literature you're reading. There's a ton of different genres in scripture. We have law, we have epistle, we have narrative, we have poetry, we have proverb. It could go on and in prophecy, it could go on and on. The book of Acts is a narrative. It's like a news story. It's telling us what happened, it's describing events. Acts is not telling us necessarily how to live our life. It's not telling us how to create a church or how to develop a political philosophy. No, the book of Acts is simply reporting on the events of the early church, and we use other types of literature in the Bible, like letter, to determine if what happened in Acts is normative for all of the church throughout all of church history, or if it was just something that happened unique to the book of Acts. There's a lot of dangerous theologies that have come out of making the book of Acts something that's prescriptive, that tells us how to live. Pastor Jeff talked about one a couple weeks ago in Acts 18 called Second Blessing Theology. That comes from making Acts prescriptive rather than descriptive. So we're going to see that tonight. Acts chapter 2. It's not a political manual. Uh, it's not a church manual. But instead, it's going to give us a glimpse into what community looked like in the early church. And then it will give us an opportunity to glean some valuable insights. So Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Okay, we've got to know the context, our first rule of hermeneutics. This comes right after Peter's fire sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 men, which means many more got saved, repented and believed in Jesus. There was a palpable energy in the early church. Everything was new and exciting and people were believing in Jesus left and right. That's where we have this text. It was new, it was exciting. But does the community that's described in Acts 2, does it last forever? No, it changes in a hurry. What happens in Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, where God sends a chill down the spine of the entire early church because a husband and wife combo lied about their generosity. Sobering moment. How about Acts chapter eight? Stephen is martyred. How about Acts chapter 12? James is martyred. And then the church in Jerusalem, which is what we're seeing here, spreads throughout the entire world because of an intense persecution that broke out. But if I had to guess... 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, the believers in Acts 2, they looked back at this text and they would call that the glory days. Those were the good old days. But there's a lot that we can glean from the text. And you saw the word fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's our theme for the weekend. Here's our working definition that we'll use tonight. Our communion with God connects us to one another. You can write that down in your booklets. Our communion with God connects us to one another, The key to true koinonia is our relationship with God. That's why we started there last night. That's why Brian took us all the way back to the garden to describe the design of God's relationship with us. Our fellowship with him, our relationship with him motivates our relationships with one another. We can't have the kind of koinonia that the Bible describes if our relationship with God is in shambles. So if your human relationships are a mess, then maybe it's time to look at your relationship with God. If we're not close with him, we can't find true community with other believers. So here's a basic outline of where we're going tonight after the world's longest introduction. Don't worry, I won't talk as long as Jared did this morning. I'll identify six koinonia creators, three koinonia killers, and then we'll finish with a koinonia commitment. Yes, that's a lot of alliteration. I must be a pastor. Here's our first koinonia creator. It comes from Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching, that's the first one. It's not a casual relationship with the apostles' teaching. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoted, it's a strong word in the Greek, meaning a close association with, requiring time and energy and even perseverance in the face of difficulty. This is something that our young adult family does well. A devotion to teaching. (laughs) I'm not complimenting my teaching. I'm complimenting your devotion to teaching. Because here's the deal if you come to Young Adults on Monday night, I'm making a big assumption that you're coming to do a church on Sunday morning. Because Young Adults isn't a church. We're part of a church, but we are not a church. So we all need to be involved in church on a Sunday, part of a, a local body of believers. So if you're coming to church on Sunday morning, and then you're coming to Young Adults on Monday night, you're not getting one, you're getting two sermons a week. And then, you apply the sermon, the second sermon, in small groups. So that's a pretty high devotion, a much higher than average devotion to to really good teaching. The early church, they weren't just watching a sermon on TBN or listening to a sermon podcast. They weren't just watching the latest Matt Chandler sermon on YouTube on Monday morning. Their devotion to teaching means that they listened and applied the teaching of the apostles together. They heard and applied the teachings in community. You know where I'm going. You know how we do that on Monday nights, right? It's our small groups. It's a natural space for us to take God's word and apply it in our life, not just individually, but in community. It's a vital aspect of what we do as a family, which is why it breaks my heart just a little bit when I'm done teaching. And I see a couple of people sneak out the admin door and skip small groups. Makes me sad. I would way rather have someone here for part of the night than none of the night. And I also understand, I don't know what time their day starts on Tuesday morning. I don't, maybe it starts at 4 a.m. So that's not me being judgmental. But small groups provide the space for us not just to be hearers of the word, but to take what we heard and apply it to our life. Coming to young adults and not going to small groups is like making cookies and not putting them in the oven and leaving them unbaked. Small groups provides the space for us to apply what we've heard. So we have a great way to do that together on Monday nights. So we're going to get a little cultish tonight, I apologize, but there's going to be a little bit of group interaction. I want you to look at your neighbor and say this, I will listen to teaching with you. Okay, look at your other neighbor and say the same thing. I will listen to teaching with you. Good. Look at what comes next in the text. Look at Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And then what do you see? The what? The breaking of bread. What do you think that, what are they talking about? The breaking of bread is what? Communion. Communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, let me ask a question. When you look at communion in the New Testament, maybe it's the book of, or the Gospel of Luke, maybe it's 1 Corinthians 11, do we ever see communion done in isolation? No, it's always something done in community. You, you don't ever see the command to go into your room, lock the door, grab your bread and your grape juice, or if you're Pastor Jared, your wine, and have, <laughs> have communion. You can tell him I said that. And remember communion. No, it's something that we do in community. It's something that we do together as one of the two ordinances of the church. We don't do communion very often on Monday nights because we're not a church. We reserve that for the gathering of believers uh, on Sunday morning, something that we do once a month here at Highland. But if someone asked you what the point of communion was, what would you say? Think of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, that when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim. The point of communion is that we remember together the gospel. Now, let me ask, is communion the only way that we can remember together the gospel? No. It's an incredible way. It's not the only way. There's a lot of other ways as a family that we can remember together the gospel. When was the last time that you walked up to someone and said, What's your story? How did you become a Christ follower? When did you believe in Jesus? When was the last time you did that to someone in our young adult family? Maybe tonight when we're hanging out at the Niemeyers around the fire and you're sitting next to someone that you don't know very well. What a great question to ask! How do you become a Christian? did you get to know Jesus? What's God been doing in your life? It's a great way that we can remember the gospel together. You know, another way is what we did 10 days ago, 11 days ago here at church. It's the third Monday worship service when we had six uh, people, part of our church family, get baptized, proclaiming their faith in Christ to everyone around them. What an incredible night of hearing people's testimonies and story of God's faithfulness in their life. There are so many different ways that we can remember the gospel, but we never graduate from remembering the gospel. We never re- graduate from declaring and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So that's the second in the creator is communion. If you have that down already, why don't you look to your neighbor and say this, I will remember the gospel with you. Okay, look to your other neighbor and say, I'll remember the gospel with you. Let's keep looking at the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What's the last word in verse 42? The what? The prayers. That's interesting. Wouldn't you think that he just said, and they devoted themselves to prayer, singular? But... It's plural with the definite article, the prayers. So it makes it sound like Luke is talking about a specific prayer. What was that? I have no idea. Maybe it was the Psalms. Maybe it was a Jewish prayer out of a prayer book. Maybe it was uh, a Psalm hymn like we see in Philippians two or Colossians one. I don't know. But the point is that they were gathering together and praying together. That prayer was part of the regular rhythm of the early church. Prayer is incredible that we can have a conversation with God anywhere, at any time. We don't even need to open our mouth, that God knows our thoughts and, and we can pray to him in our mind And a connection to our creator. It's incredible. And we see that prayer is something that's private, just us and God. We see that example in scripture over and over again from Daniel to Jesus, but that's not the focus of the text in Acts that they prayed together. Not just individually, but communally. That's our third koinonia creator is prayer. Here's our cheesy tweet of the night. A young adult family that prays together stays together. Mm. Mm. You all know I came up with that too, didn't you? Yeah, no, I don't, I have to have seen that about a thousand different places. So, but communal prayer, that prayer together includes two things, praying with each other and for each other. So I want you to look at your neighbor and say, I will pray with you and for you. Look at your other neighbor and say, I'll pray with you and for you. You guys are really good at this. I'm impressed. That's exactly right. We get to talk to God together, which is just a remarkable gift let me be honest, I'm guilty of often just making prayer an add-on. You know what I mean? Maybe it's a Mexico team meeting that we have, and we look at the clock and realize that I'm already a half an hour long, and we just, okay, we need one person to pray really fast, and then we'll be done. Or maybe it's a small group that I lead uh, for one of our leaders when they're gone, and we look at the clock, and we're like, oh no, we're over. Okay, one person, pray, and we'll send a prayer request later, and have a good week, right? We just tack prayer on at the end, Or maybe we do that in our personal life where we get to the end of the day and our head hits the pillow like, I don't think I talked to God today. Ever happened to you? It happens to me. Or maybe we get to the meal meal time and we pause and we say three sentences. We just tack prayer on at the end, beginning. Prayer's not an add-on. It's not an appetizer. Prayer is our foundation. It's our connection to our creator. Let's not make prayer just an add-on to our young adult family. Let's make it central in our conversations, in our relationships, and in our small groups, our time with one another. We also need to pray for each other. That phrase, how can I pray for you, should be something that comes out of our mouth over and over and over and over again. And then instead of just writing down that request or saying, okay, yes, I can pray for that, we need to grow in just pausing and praying right then and there, putting a hand on shoulder of that brother or that sister and, and praying for them right there. I love when I see that on a Monday night, before or after young adults, two people just praying together. Or in small groups, instead of just trying to remember the requests, to write them down on our phone or on our handout, pray during the week and then follow up the next week and ask how those requests are going. We need to be a young adult family that prays with each other and for each other. Look at verse 43 in our text. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Down to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I noticed two words. Verse 43, the word awe and then verse 47, praising. Put those together, it's worship, isn't it? That's our next in the creator is worship. When we worship God together, we cultivate real relationships. Relationships that matter. Worship, it just means to ascribe worth. It comes from the old English word worth-ship. We can ascribe worth to God in countless different ways, to the way we live our life, but one of the best ways that we can worship God is through singing, through congregational worship, through music. That's one of my favorite things about our young adult family is you love to sing. And so does Will, I guess, too. <laughs> you love to worship. I've noticed that even more in the last year or so. And it's, it's been such a cool thing to be part of our Mexico mission trip. I wish that all of us, all of you could go with us. It is a life-changing experience. And it has been for me this summer fifth year going in March where we go to Mexico, we run a Christian camp for missionary kids uh, and third culture kids in Puebla, Mexico. My favorite part of camp is chapel. We cram into this little chapel. It barely fits a hundred people. We sit on these really, really uncomfortable wood pews. And the band is n- nothing special, a couple guitars, a cajon, a couple singers, but those kids sing. They don't care what anybody thinks of them. They're just shouting at the top of their lungs, worship to God. Hands in the air. It, it's incredible. I, I don't know if I've ever seen genuine worship quite like that. And it rubs off on our team. It's like the kids are teaching our team how to worship. It's interesting. It's supposed to be the other way around. And it's a unique thing. It's something that, I haven't experienced anywhere except there. I want to learn to be like those kids, not caring as much what people think of me and focusing just on God. It happened a little bit this past summer. Some of you were with us down in the Wisconsin Dells in June. We did a two day service project with Zach and Becky Alwyn. We were supposed to be ministering to college students uh, who were from all around the world serving as student workers in Wisconsin Dells. We're doing an outreach event a Tuesday night and Wednesday night for over 200 of these international student workers. And the first night went great. Second night, <laughs> there's a tornado warning. So we find ourselves in Zach and Becky Alwyn's basement. There's 25 of us from Young Adults. The basement was smaller than the stage. It was tiny. And like, there's a tornado warning. The sirens are wailing. Like, it was, you know, very memorable experience. And Zach, <laughs> Zach comes walking down the stairs and he hands me his guitar. And before I know it, we are having a spontaneous worship session And we sang Jesus to you alone. And I thought, like, the roof of the house was going to blow off because we were singing so loud. I have never heard a room that loud. And it was just a spontaneous family worship thing. I wish all of you could have been there. In the words of Bianca, it was a vibe. (laughs) (laughs) But here's my dream for young adults. That not only we grow in congregational worship and not caring about what other people think, but that we set the tone for worship at our church, that we are engaged, that we're excited, that when we show up to church on Sunday morning, that worship isn't an afterthought, it's not a warm-up to the sermon. It's easy to show up distracted and thinking about all the things that are maybe coming later in the day or all the things that happen during the week. But what would happen if we set the tone of growing the engagement, the excitement for congregational worship at our church. That's what we're gonna to do tomorrow. We're all gonna sit in the same section of church. 10.30 service, if you're looking at the stage, front left. That means you've gotta come early on time so you can get a seat. And know that's gonna be hard for some of you. I watch some of you coming to church every week. It's fine, John Anderson. <laughs> but if we all sit together, same section, we get to feed off each other's energy, we get to set the tone, for what that worship, engagement, involvement will look like. One of the best ways we can build community as a family is by singing and worshiping together. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, "I will worship with you." Look at your other neighbor and say, "I'll worship with you." Look at verse. Look at Acts two, starting in verse forty-four. Acts two forty-four. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One word, generosity. It's our next coining near creator is generosity. They shared as any had need. They understood that the things they had wasn't theirs. Everything was God's in the first place and they were quick and willing and eager to share with their community, with their brothers and sisters. Again, this is not advocating a certain political philosophy, nor is this advocating for the commune plan where we sell everything and move into Highland together and live off the land. That's not, (laughs) uh, that's not the picture here though. That would be fun for about 48 hours. (laughs) Then I'd get sick of some of you. No, what do we see? We see a heart of generosity that's quick and willing and eager to share. How about us? Are we viewing what we have as ours or do we view what we have with an open palm? A quick application for this this week would be just praying a simple prayer. Father, who can I be generous with this week? Who can I share with this week? Because everything we have, it's God's in the first place. (laughs) It's not ours anyway. Look again at verse, oh, no, before we do that, man, we still have to practice our, uh, our interaction. Look at your neighbor and say, I will share with you. Look at your other neighbor and say, I will share with you. <laughs> wow, you guys are so generous. I can't believe it. I'm gonna start asking for a lot of things tonight. I appreciate it. Look at verse 47 praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine what that would have been like? After Peter preaches this fire sermon on Pentecost, 3,000 men get saved plus many more, and then people are getting saved every single day. The church is growing. It's exploding at a rate like it never had before. God was up to something. He was moving. There was this energy. Can you imagine what that would be like? We've seen a little of that, a fraction of that here. Our young adult family, haven't we? Young adult says, you know what today started five and a half years ago in this room with 40 people around six round tables and three small groups. A little different with 16 small groups and sometimes 150 people on a Monday night. God's up to something, isn't he? Or even our winter conference, significantly more of us here this year than we did a year ago or two years ago. God's doing something. And Quantity, eh. to me, it's kind of an inconsequential way to measure growth. I like to think of growth on a macro level, not a micro level. So think of what God's doing on the micro level. That I know of, we had at least four people who are connected to the young adult family who profess faith in Christ just last fall. We had three young adults who decided to get baptized a couple weeks ago, and like ten young adults who decided to get baptized over the summer. We've had probably 20 or more people start going through Finally Free since last November, maybe more, fighting for personal purity and seeing incredible victory. Or maybe you show up to church on a Wednesday night and you realize that it kind of feels like Young Adults 2.0 between One Way Club and G180 because so many of you are serving. And I think that is absolutely incredible. Makes me want to show up on Wednesday nights. God's up to something this is a growing family. This is not a stagnant community. And we can't take the credit for that. Only God can take the credit for that. But there's a couple ways that we can tap the brakes on what God's doing here. There's a couple ways that we can be koinonia killers. Here's the first. Exclusivism. You, you need a blank? Is that what half of? You, is that what you're saying? What do, you, what do you need? What do you need? Inclusivity, inclusivity. great. Thanks, Ben. All my Type A friends were like, "But you missed the blank," <laughs> and then half of you are like, "I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> so now you know your personality type. So thanks. You're welcome. The opposite of inclusivity is our first coin in the killer. It's Exclusivity. It's deciding that we're a club, that we're a clique, that we're not going to invite people in, that not, we're not going to be warm, we're not going to be welcoming. We need to continue to welcome those who are new to the family. I want you to say to your neighbor, welcome to the family. I not you say to your other neighbor, welcome to the family. There we go. That's right. We could all start singing, we are family, and then it's really going to start to feel cultish, so that's fine. Uh, We're family. Here's the deal. You and I know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. We know what it's like to want to be in that conversation, but never get invited. We know what it's like to see that group of friends have a party, and we were the one that gets left on the sideline. We're the ones who know what it feels like to walk in the door and be the only person in the room that doesn't know anybody and have no one talk to you. That does not feel good. So then why do we do the same thing to other people? Why do we make other people feel the same way? Like they're on the outside looking in. That is the opposite of what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility. Paul is advocating for something that's completely countercultural. In our culture, our world tries to get us to believe that we are the most important person in the room. You ever heard that sort of teaching before? Walk in the room, believe you're the most important person in the room. Is that what Paul says? What does he say? Walk in the room and believe you're the least important person in the room. That's what Jesus' heart was like. It's not in a self-deprecating sort of way. It's a humble sort of a way of thinking of myself less sort of a way. The opposite of humility, right, is pride. We've got to let go of our pride so that we can let go of our exclusivism. Here's the next, another NEA killer, is greed. Greed. It's the opposite of generosity. Greed says what I have is mine, and I won't share with you. James talks about this type of greed in James 2, verses 15 and 16. It says this, "'If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, "'and one of you says to them, "'Go in peace, be warmed and filled.'" Without giving them the things needed for the body, (laughs) what good is that? (laughs) Here's what that looks like today. Someone in our young adult family has a need that we can meet, but we just say, I'll pray for you, and we don't do anything to help them. James says that our faith is dead. (laughs) Ouch. Thanks, James. He's not saying prayer is worthless, but he's saying that if someone has a need and their prayer request is that need, And you can meet the need. Don't just pray for them. Meet the need. Don't hold back our generosity. Greed kills community. Are we greedy or are we generous? Here's the final koinonia killer. The second is greed. The third is gossip. Not sure if you've ever thought about gossip in this way, but... Gossip is the opposite of prayer. Prayer is a private conversation with God. Gossip is a public conversation with others. God can fix the problem, but the person you're talking to can't. Gossip occurs every time we pass along negative information about someone when we have nothing to do with the problem and nothing to do with the solution. Here's a gossip test before we let that thing out of our mouth to have a little conversation with ourselves and ask, hmm, I'll pick on John. Would, would John be okay with me sharing this information with this person today? If the answer to that question is no, it's probably gossip. We should bite our tongue and take a step. Back. In churches, in Christian ministries, in families like young adults, gossip can destroy in minutes what it took years of trust to build. Not too many things infuriate us more than gossip. When I hear a rumor about me or I hear a rumor about someone that I love, maybe it's an inflated version of the truth, it ticks me off. It's not fair, it's unjust. I'm sure you know the feeling. And what does gossip do to our relationships? Kind of destroys them, doesn't it? It leaves them broken and fractured and shattered. As I look ahead to 2023, I believe that gossip might be the biggest threat to our young adult family. What God is doing here could be hindered, it could be destroyed by chronic gossip. So, what do we do? How do we respond and prevent gossip? Here's the first. We've got to shut it down, shut down gossip. It's hard, but it needs to happen. Whether it's coming out of our mouth or we're hearing about it from somebody else, we've got to have the courage to bite our tongue or to interrupt a conversation and say, I don't think we should be talking about this. Can we talk about something else? Or are you sure that's true? Maybe you should go back to the source on that one. We've got to be willing to have a tough conversation and shut down the gossip. Second, we have to address conflict directly it's hard. I don't know if I've met anyone that honestly can say, yes, I like conflict. No, we all hate conflict. It's way easier for me to take the pain that someone else has inflicted in my life or the frustration and go talk about that with 10 other people. That's easy, but it's also sinful. It's a lot harder for me to go back to that friend, that brother, that sister, and have a really hard conversation. But that's biblical. That's righteous, dealing with the conflict directly. When someone hurts us, when we hear about or notice a sin struggle, we've got to keep the circle as small as possible. Maybe that means talking to a mentor, a trusted leader that you know isn't going to spread that news to anybody else. Not someone just to vent to, but someone to bounce some ideas off of, to ask for wisdom, how can I respond to this? and then deal with it appropriately. We've got to address conflict directly. Third, we've got to forgive. There's a chance that just by me talking about this, you're realizing that there's some relationships that you've broken because you haven't done a good job biting your tongue. And there's a chance maybe they're on the other side of the room tonight. There's only one path forward, and that's restoration. That's going up to the person that you've hurt, that you've gossiped about, and owning it and asking for their forgiveness. And then going back to the people that you talk to and making it right. Is that hard? <sighs> yeah. That's really hard. But it's right, and it's good. Conflict is going to happen. In our relationships. That's part of what it means to be human. The path forward is redemption. The path forward is reconciliation. The path forward is forgiveness. Fourth, don't be a fruit inspector. It is not my job to inspect the fruit in someone else's life. It is certainly not my job to inspect the fruit and then offer a full 10-page report on my findings to other people. I get to inspect my own fruit and ask, how am I doing in my life? I get to give permission to mentor, accountability partner, my wife, close friends, and ask, how do you think I'm doing? Where do you see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? What are my blind spots? Where are you seeing room for growth? But it is not my job to walk around with the clipboard at Young Adults on Monday night with a checklist to say, yes, you have faithfulness. Yes, you have love. Yes, you have peace. It's not my job. I think Paul gives us a much better picture of what this looks like in Galatians chapter 6. I love this text. He says in verse 1 and 2, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourselves, lest you too become tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The best sermon I've ever heard from this text was from Pastor Andrew. I don't know how long ago we preached in the main service. Maybe six months ago. You can find it on our website if you want. Incredible message. But you see the picture that Paul paints? Bearing one another's burdens. Not being fruit inspectors, but bearing burdens. And the burden from our text is sin, isn't it? The burden from our text is a brother or sister who is caught in a transgression. We don't gossip about the sin. We don't guilt trip about the sin. We gently restore them by bearing a burden. We're not the judge. As brothers and sisters, we're not the prosecuting attorney. We're the come alongsider. We're the one that says, yeah, I'm gonna help you carry that backpack. Being a come alongsider Provides a picture of lifting somebody up. What does gossip do? It kicks them while they're still down. But bearing burdens is hard. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes accountability. It takes consistency. It's frustrating. When we notice sin in a brother or sister's life, we encourage them, we don't kick them while they're down. I love that picture in Galatians chapter six. You know, if we're going to take a step towards real community, towards relationships that matter, if we want to practice Galatians six, then we have to let someone in, (laughs) which is hard, isn't it? We're really good at pretending like everything's okay. We're really good at pretending like we have our act together. We're really good at pretending like we're really good Christians and that nothing's wrong. I don't think the world needs any more cookie-cutter Christians, honestly. We need to let somebody in. It doesn't have to be your whole small group. but It's got to be somebody. My freshman year in college, yes, I was part of the Fab Five, but that was the opposite end of the spectrum from my friendship with my friend Paul. Paul and I would meet in the dorm room every Thursday night, and we'd pray. Talk about our problems, and then we'd pray. Every week for a whole year. I remember when Paul and I were talking, <laughs> looking back, some of the things I shared with him, I don't know how I would have responded, but not as nicely as he did, certainly. He got the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then we prayed together. It wasn't fake, it wasn't perfect, but it was friendship. And what I had with him lasted four years in college, not two months of a hashtag friendship. But it starts by letting somebody in. And if I had to guess, some of you have done a really good job of keeping people at an arm's length and not letting them in. Maybe your coin in the commitment is to say, I'm going to let somebody in this week. Yep, there's a conversation I need to have. Yeah, there's a struggle that's been going on that nobody knows about. Yeah, I've just been really lonely and nobody knows it. Let somebody in. If you want a real community, it's not going to come knocking on your door. You've got to take a step. So I want to finish with just a moment of application tonight. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You get to come up with it on your own. That's the last thing in your handout, a koinonia commitment. The goal for the weekend is taking the next step towards healthy relationships. With God, maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe with a friend. And I want all of us to come up with at least one, one commitment. You've heard of smart goals before, something that are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-sensitive. That's what we want. I don't want something like, yeah, I'm going to invite someone out for coffee. No, no, we, we need a name and when you're gonna invite them by. Let's make this something that's measurable. It's time sensitive, that's realistic. And maybe there's a couple things that you're wrestling through, a couple different options. I want you to pick the hard one, not the easy one. Set the bar high, not low. And then after you write down that commitment, I want you to take it a step farther. And I want you to write the name of the person that's going to hold you accountable to that commitment. I want you to write the name of the person that you're going to tell that commitment to, and they're going to follow up and make sure that you follow through. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Then we're going to sing one more song. So, Band, if you want to come up, you can do that. A caveat. The third question for small groups tonight says, if comfortable, share your koinonia commitment with your small group. Some of you may have written down something that was very personal. And if you did, you don't have to share that with your small group. You just have to share it with the one person you wrote down on your handout. So let me pray. Father you know we long for community because that's how you made us. You made us to long for relationships with one another. And may you give us the opportunity to grow. May you give us the opportunity to develop some of those deep relationships. May you give us the opportunity for real community, not flash friendships, but real, true community. Father, even as we... Have a song of maybe it's singing, maybe it's reflection. May you instill in us by your Spirit something practical, a goal, a coin, a commitment that we can make to go throughout our week to apply some of the great things we've heard and learned this weekend to our everyday life. In Jesus' name.